Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Every citizen can see when someone is going to fly a jet into a building and blow it up that there is an argument um, for state security um, to be uh, at least um, able to go and track calls on, on that basis. And if evidence was used to convict, which was uh, unlawfully obtained or there was question marks over it or it should have been redacted or, or set aside when it came to the trial, that's a significant issue. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Ireland's mobile phone data retention systems are under the spotlight and European legal experts have warned they may have breached the law. Now killer Graeme Dwyer is eyeing up a favourable appeal to his conviction for the murder of Elaine O'Hara. But will the jailed architect who groomed his vulnerable victim through BDSM actually walk free? Today, I'm talking to Barrister Ronan Lupton about the complex technicalities that could determine Dwyer's fate. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Ronan, I covered the nine-week trial at the time of Graham Dwyer um, that really, you know, grabbed the, na- the nation's attention, all the intricate details of what was going on in the background there with the BDSM and uh, his grooming really of a very vulnerable girl. Now, he really nearly got away with murder. That was the one thing I came away from that trial. It was a matter of luck or coincidence that uh, the body of the remains of Elaine O'Hara showed up around the same time that um, mobile phones and other items used um, in her in her murder also showed up and it was all supposed to be do with the it's supposed to have done with this particularly hot summer when the the lake down in Roundwood uh, dropped and when the ground maybe where she was buried dried up and and opened up so but it does when i see this ongoing story about the mobile phone evidence and whether or not he'll be freed it does worry me i mean i do have to say from sitting there he is a very disturbed man and um 
his attraction to knives does appear to be a pretty rare, um, you know, dysfunction that he has. There's no suggestion that if he did get out, he wouldn't try and, um, you know, groom vulnerable girls again. So what's going on and is he actually going to be released? Well, just take it from the uh, the reservoir for a moment. Um, a set of keys were found in the reservoir with a uh, shopping club cart and a diligent guard, who should be thanked, found the club cart and decided to return the keys to their rightful owner or at least find out who he what information he could uh, uh, from the information contained in the club cart. And that led to... Um, I think a very significant break in what we now know um, ended up in the conviction of, of Graham Dwyer. Mm. Um, in terms of your views, I mean, it's hard to disagree with them. Um, ultimately, Mr. Dwyer has been convicted of murder, and that's the situation we're in. When you look at the trial and the detail um, that was got into uh, from the prosecution's point of view, a number of features um, spring to my mind. One, um, the use of civilian guardi or civilian members of Ngarda Shikona to... Uh, I guess, look at the patterns of behaviour outside of the telecoms information um, that was used to convict uh, Graham Dwyer. For example, number plate recognition over tolls in um, the Midlands and but also close to Dublin where cars uh, um, that were used by Dwyer and others uh, were tracked um, mm. and patterns of movement that had been denied were, you know, I guess, stitched and pinned down. So that was certainly interesting. So we, we, we have two items so far in this mm. discussion. One, a set of keys with a club card and two, uh, non-telecoms related information about movements. Uh, and the key from my point of view is, you know, not everything to do with this conviction or was circumstantial evidence linked to mobile phone mm. or internet data. And now to answer the question. The position with regard to the wholesale and mass indiscriminate recording of telecoms and internet traffic in Ireland um, is covered by a piece of legislation called the Communications Retention of Data Act 2011. And that act mandates the recording by telecom companies of the metadata, if you want, or the raw information, not the content, of communications between A party and B party. So in other words, if I texted you and you texted me back, and I texted you back on a particular date. Yes. The fact that we had had that communication as opposed to the content of them. Yes. So it's probably better to characterise it with telephone calls. So multiple mm. telephone calls. Your Nicholas A number calls my B number. Yeah. It's recorded, it's time-stamped, and the duration would be available uh, at that point. So the fact of the calls would be traceable. Um, as I mentioned, the telcos have um, a legal obligation uh, to record that information for two years. And similarly with uh, data, so um, data flows between, again, a mobile phone, it might be an instant messenger, for example, or some other form of messaging would be recorded in terms of the stamping and, and communications uh, between A party and B party. Um, in 2012, 2013, a challenge was taken to this um, legislation, I guess. It's important to kind of give the background, so I'll do that. Mm. Uh, in 2002, um, a European directive was brought in called the Data Retention and for sorry, the Privacy uh, um, Electronic Communications Privacy uh, um, Directive, which mandates privacy on uh, devices, telephones, and so forth. And it, it it effectively applies to telephone companies and internet providers to ensure that the privacy of users mm -hmm. is maintained as a matter of European law. 
Um, but similarly, in 2002, um, discussions started to uh, occur about um, incidents of state security around the world. And the genesis of that discussion uh, was 9-11, um, the Madrid and London bombings. Mm-hmm. Okay, so between 2002 and 2006, uh, but also when you think about 2000 and, um, 2001 and 9-11 and that incident, mm. there were very significant terrorist um, events around the world. Uh, which gave rise to a concern in the European uh, legislative bodies of the European Union that law was required um, when uh, state security was at risk that the member states could actually find out what was going on. So now, you certainly had two things going on. You had yeah. the sort of the fight for privacy yeah. of your data and on the other hand you had the likes of these uh, significant events which could affect any of us and there has to be some facility for policing and security ex- to be able to go and, and check out yeah. who's talking to who. It just happens that they overlapped, to yeah. be honest with you. Um, but the discussions did 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 start in around 2001-2002 and, and you know it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that Every citizen can see when someone is going to fly a jet into a building and blow it up, uh, and the second building in the context of the Twin Towers mm. are having bombing events around the world. That there is an argument um, for state security um, mm. to be uh, at least um, able to go and track calls on, on that basis. And again, it's the same type of information we talked about: a, a end and b end yeah. information. However, when when you look at the um, privacy and electronic communications. Uh, um, directive which I mentioned, uh, Article 15 of that directive contains, um, I guess, um, a permission, which is that you can retain the information for the purposes of state security. Mm-hmm. But for everything else, there must be robust law. So if you want to investigate offences or you want to investigate, uh, you know, regulatory issues or whatever it happens to be, there, there must be a codified law, proper oversight, and what I mean by that is judicial and independent oversight. Um, and there must be a temporal limitation applied to the information that's retained by virtue of those laws. And that's clear, and it's been there for quite some time. Mm. So when you think about it, um, the Union brought in, the European Union brought in the Data Retention Enforcement Directive of 2006, which is the piece of legislation that was enabled by the legislation I mentioned a moment ago, the mm. 2011 um, Communications Retention of Data Act. So we were very late bringing it in. We were we just know, sort of ignored it for a while, obviously. Well, now here's a, here's an interesting piece of background. Uh, in Ireland, um, because of the nature of the troubles in mm. the north, there's always been a, a focus on telecoms, um, signals and so forth. Um, and there had been a regime operating where the minister could mandate and specify that an operator uh, could, ret- could be ordered to retain information uh, by ministerial direction. And that occurs in the 1983 uh, Postal and Telecommunications Services Act. Um, and it is only anecdotal, but uh, there may have been directions made on Aircom uh, prior to liberal- liberalisation of the market. Uh, um, and there certainly was instances that I'm aware of from my previous career in telecoms where longer periods of, of retained information may have been um, you know, sought, uh, but in certain circumstances, and usually quite spe- specific and specific. And by by officers going in yeah. to a judge and looking for a yeah, warrant yeah. for no, that. absolutely properly done. Yeah, uh, there's no two ways about that. Um, thereafter, uh, and this may have been, I'm pretty sure I'm right that it was you know with the Oma bombing firmly firmly in the minds of the state 
a piece of legislation was brought into being called the Criminal Justice Terrorist Offences Act 2005, um, which, which specifically mandated uh, that telecom records be retained for a period of three years under Section 63. Um, now, of course, there's overlapping time periods in terms of what I've just said in the legislation. So it was already being thought of, if not already drafted, mm. that the European legislation would come along from 02 and into 06. And indeed, a challenge was taken by the Irish state in terms of the genesis of um, the Data Retention Enforcement Directive and whether it was in fact right that the council bring it in the way they did. And the council, of course, are you know, the presidents of, uh, and the senior representatives, representatives of each member state making decisions, which may not be the way the legislative process should work in the European Union. In any event, um, I suppose what I'm saying to you is there had been a regime here of retaining information relating to tele telecoms metadata prior to this um, uh, European legislation, which has been um, taken out. So what Europe had sort of decided was when it came to acts of terrorism, you could pretty much go back and get that yeah. information if it was any sort of a threat to the security of the state. That's right. But outside that, the information could be held, but you... You can't have it at all, or you can only have it for a certain period of time. There should be legislation brought in in order to right. interfere with the rights of users under the e-privacy uh, um, laws. Okay, so it's a slightly different thing. So I'm looking at the e-privacy law when I tell you that, whereas the um, Data Retention Enforcement Directive says, well, you know, just retain everything and it's for state security, but pretty much. Mm. And here's the framing mm. in relation to it. So there was no delineation between serious offences or whatever it happens to be, mm. uh, rather than state security, which, was, which is what the intention was in terms of the privacy aspects of it. So that's a significant difference. So when you look at the Irish legislation in 2011, what it said was that for the investigation of um, alleged serious offences, which, as you know, Nicola, are offences with tolls of in excess of five years in jail, if you're successfully prosecuted, arising under the Bail Act 1997, um, that that legislation, that the 11 Act, could be used to obtain um, information by, uh, I think it's a chief superintendent in the Garda Shikona, a colonel in the army, or a senior revenue, revenue official by simply writing to the telecoms companies mm. uh, and and requesting relatively detailed information. You know, you have to have the A end and B end and, you know, um, the time period within the two-year permissible, permissible uh, um, duration to get the information. So that was how it was operating. Um, just going back a minute to the sort of previous regime, you can see with the Irish Troubles why there might have been a reason why Ireland should have a carve-out. Mm. Um, if the European law hadn't come about. Because we had a history of subversive activity, which, you know, they haven't gone away. Um, and yeah. that's the situation. So anyway, um, moving forward to 2012, 2013, um, a challenge was taken before the Irish courts by Digital Rights Ireland to the Data Retention Enforcement Directive, as well as other pieces of legislation. And who are Digital Rights Ireland? And what They're a civil they rights of? group, um, sort of membership um association, you know, and they would, you know, act on certain grounds. And I've had some association in terms of acting for them, but, um, you know, they, they would certainly highlight issues mm. where either the state's gone too far or there are problems or maybe, uh, you know, um, from time to time they'd be giving, I guess, commentary pieces on, you know, privacy issues or data protection issues, that sort of thing. Um but a civil society group, I suppose, is the best way to summarise what they are. Um, I remember having some dealings with them myself around yeah. one period when I made a complaint to the Garda Ombudsman about my own phone records yeah. being sought. 
um, nothing ever came of it, but uh, nonetheless... Well, as we're on the subject, yeah. um, uh, the rights of journalists in Ireland or the, the, the existence of journalistic privilege, um, academically, it doesn't exist. Uh, and that's a huge issue, I think, in terms of civil uh, mm. cases that come before the courts. There are lots of battles about um, source confidence. And obviously with a regime where wholesale mass and indiscriminate retention of information occurs, um, you know, sources may be disclosed, uh, you know, which obviously is a chilling issue when it comes to the publication of, of material and journalist rights to protect their sources. So there's a significant, mm. I think, gap in Ireland um, when it comes to uh, the protection of journalist sources. Now, that's not to say journalists aren't ethical. They are. Um, and they do their best um, with mm. what they have. But and were we not involved in a High Court case at which it was suggested that it was that's protected right. under yeah. the Constitution? Yeah, no, the, the, the Article um, 40.6.1.1 of the Constitution has rights in, in terms of freedom of expression. And mm. Justice Hogan in that case, um, it was a case called Cornick and Maurice, held that, um, you know, the, the right to source confidence uh, was an important right. And in that case, based on the facts, he, he found with us, that's right. Yeah. Um, now, ultimately, um, you know, there is a concern in terms of uh, if there was to be a misbehaviour by the state, that journalists' um, information could be uh, um, accessed. And I'm going to say unlawfully because it would be in that mm. context. Because mm. um, what what is a journalist, or has a, could a journalist possibly have a hand in subversive or criminal activity? The answer is, it is possible, but it's highly unlikely. Um, you know, so th that's my view. Anyhow, back to Digital Rights Ireland. Mm. Um, so Mr. Justice McKechnie uh, made a reference to the Court of Justice, uh, asking the court to um, consider as a matter of European law whether or not um, the Data Retention Enforcement Directive was compliant with the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union, but also the privacy and electronic uh, communications laws, as I mentioned to you. And uh, the... Data Retention Enforcement Directive was annulled or declared to be invalid in 2014, which is quite some years ago. And that sent ripple effects across all 27 Euro European member states at that stage um, to say, well, we shouldn't be doing this. You know, we shouldn't be retaining information for long periods of time unless it's for state, state security and, you know, it can't be or shouldn't be used outside of that. Um, so effectively, uh, what was brought into legislation in 2011 and went through the Houses of the Oireachtas, by the way. This is mm. not something that was simply signed in by secondary statutory instrument. There was debates. All five stages were passed, fully debated and so forth. And in fact, there had been a discussion initially that it would simply, this particular legislation would simply be brought in by a statutory instrument. But because it looked at serious offences, there was possibly prosecutions, not within the ambit of that legislation, but ancillary to it, that it should be fully debated in the House of the Oireachtas. And I would agree with that. Mm. It makes sense that that occur, would occur. So, um, you know, moving it on, uh, what you had immediately was a question mark over whether or not um, what was going on uh, under the 2011 regime was sustainable. Uh, and the answer really was, well, it, it's, it's national law until such time as it's not. So in other words, investigations that occurred, criminal investigations that occurred using this information mm. um, and bearing down on what was by 2014 defunct legislation, mm. that they could be appealed. 
They could be, but there was no challenge brought. Mm. You know, the most ho- high-profile challenge to this particular legislation was Mr. Dwyer's challenge. Mm. So there hadn't been anything brought before the courts, as far as I'm aware. Um, so just to bring to us back, actually, to Dwyer, but he, Elaine O'Hara, essentially went missing in uh, August of 2011, and she had last been seen down at Shangana Beach in Shankill, Um at the time, I think her family, an investigation was launched. She had been suffering from mental health issues for a long time. There was a, a, a poster drop around the area and she had been seen heading towards the sea. And I think there was kind of a universal uh, belief that maybe she had tragically taken her own life. Uh, that until the remains of Elaine O'Hara showed up in and around the same time as these as when we started out the conversation with the, the phones and the, the key fob with the um, the Dunn stores tag on it, yep. etc. And we'll maybe have a little listen to um, a documentary we made around the time of his conviction. For, the ultimate fantasy for Dwyer was that he was this kind of mask-wearing, um, uber serial killer who could slip into a woman's bedroom and completely and utterly both captivate her and then kill her. Graham Dwyer was convicted following a lengthy trial and led away to serve a life sentence. He's one of Ireland's most notorious prisoners and at the time of his conviction, we spoke to two experts, criminologists David Wilson and John O'Keefe, who detailed just how dangerous they believe him to be. So clearly getting up to here is a bit of a difficulty. She would have, Elaine O'Hara would have had to walk. No question. I mean, we've just walked up here now. It's a very nice day. Everything's very easy in one sense. And it took us, you know, a good few minutes to get up here, just yeah. taking ourselves up here. So there's no question that she would have come up here Willingly, if not so willingly, speak. then certainly without assistance. Um, yeah. And uh, obviously the event happened in or around this area, as we know. Um, what's unusual about it, I suppose, is, is that the, the, when the body was found, it didn't appear as if it was buried very deeply, although it was hard to know because it had been disturbed. But um, he certainly didn't appear to go to too many efforts. He probably would have assumed that nobody would ever come up here, yeah. which would be a reasonable assumption. Um, because it is a very remote area. Very remote, just off the... But given off what the you know of Graeme Dwyer, of his personality, his disordered personality, and the nature of serial killers, would you have expected that he may have revisited this site at any point? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt that he would have revisited it. Not just in order to make sure he'd committed the perfect crime, but probably to leave his signature or whatever that would have been. So it might have been removal of another bone or a, a limb of the body very often the heads, arms and legs are removed and uh, replaced elsewhere or just taken away and destroyed uh, bodies are put in certain positions so um, we'll never know this because it was so disturbed but there's no question he would have come back here almost to view his work almost like a trophy coming mm-hmm. back seeing the work he had done remember this is a lifetime in the making and this is his FA Cup final coming up here mm. seeing what he's done and then walking away he would certainly have interfered with the body when, when he was up here though So really Graham Dwyer and his case falls smack bang into the middle of this That's right. time period that is the problem. That's right. And, you know, one thing I would observe, and it's valid, I think, is that the Gardaí do their best with limited resource on the law in this area was annulled effectively in 2014. Mm. Now, as I said, no challenge was taken before the Irish courts to say the 2011 Act is defunct. You shouldn't be using it. And on its face... Uh, cases going before the courts where records were produced to prosecute, be they circumstantial or deemed circumstantial or otherwise. 
um, it mightn't have even featured because ultimately the courts are going to say, well, only 5% of this case or 4% of this case is telecom yeah. records. So mm-hmm. why, why would we be interested in that? We have a bloodstained knife or we have uh-huh. a, 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 a gun, you name it. Okay, So it's, I'd say in most cases, ancillary. Yeah, what happened, and it might go to where someone was located or whatever triangulation. I think comes into it from time to time as well, which is obviously where the base station and the phone are talking mm-hmm. to one another before the telecoms um, path is made to make a call or whatever it happens to be. But you're right. Um, so what 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 happens or what the effect is of um, the opinion from last week from the Advocate General uh, of the Court of Justice is that uh, significant questions have to be asked about why the state hasn't updated um, the regime here. Um, to say we're no longer operating the the Eleven Act, we're going to refit it and and have proper judicial supervision, more limited and pointed, um, I guess time assessments in terms of the access of information and have the carve outs that are required to investigate serious crime. It's very complicated. So when the lawyers get to it um, in the Attorney General's office or in the Department of Justice, it'll probably be a combination of a team looking at that. Um, mm. It's going to be a difficult task. Now, of course, it's important to observe, and it's very important to observe, in fact, that 70% of the time the Advocate General's opinion, once rendered, is followed um, by the Court of Justice of the European Union. So the Court is now deliberating at the moment since the opinion was rendered last week on the facts of the Dwyer challenge, and I think there are two joint cases, but they're not relevant for this discussion. And it might be that this is the type of case that falls within the 30%, but the difficulty is, and the Advocate General highlighted this, there are two or three, if not four, cases that went in that time period from 2014 till now, which affect this retention enforcement directive and the privacy and electronic communications laws, which say a couple of things which are of relevance. One is about the independent uh, oversight point. And the second was a point you mentioned when we started our conversation about the retrospective effect of this uh, law being annulled. So everything that occurred in the Dwyer example was in 2012, 2013. And under national law, um, if the law was good at that stage, there'd be an argument to say, well, sure, wasn't the law good at that stage? There's nothing to see here. That's the way things were at that point in time, yeah. yeah. But because the... The law was annulled, the Data Retention Enforcement Directive was annulled in 2014. Mm. There are two cases, uh, LQDN and Procurator, which effectively say that doesn't matter. Um, The state of the law was the state of the law when it comes to privacy and electronic communications at that time. Mm. And that hasn't changed. The fact that the Retention Enforcement Directive is gone, it was annulled in 2014, means that what went on thereafter might be a difficulty. So, I mean, it remains to be seen what the court will do, mm. but on a statistic of 70% plus, I wouldn't be that hopeful um, that they won't follow uh, uh, the uh, the AG's opinion as given. So there's a lot of um, media interest in this last week, and I think rightly so. Um, the question is, what will happen next? And what happens next with a preliminary reference from any court or tribunal is that the questions of European law, and there were six questions asked by the Supreme Court, we'll go back to that court as answered, and then the court will then make its finding in terms of the challenge before it. Now, the Supreme Court gave a couple of hints in respect of the reference when it made its reference, and they referred to two cases. Um, JC is one case, which is to do with the um, the law surrounding un- uh, uncon- unconstitutionally obtained evidence, and the second was A in the Governor of Arbor Hill uh, Prison. But the main one for my purposes is the JC case, which effectively says if the Guardi haven't done anything nefarious in respect of obtaining information, that they should be able to rely upon that information. 
So, so you mean, in other words, if they've been to court, they've got the warrants that yeah. they believe that they are operating under the law and yeah. they've got the information on that basis, that's okay? Well, here's the thing. They wouldn't have gone to court for a warrant in this dynamic because ultimately the directive as, trans, as transposed into Irish law or activated under Irish law under the, under the 11 framework didn't require that. Mm. So a uh, chief superintendent would have signed off on a, we can call it a warrant, but a request for information mm-hmm. from a telephone company. There's nothing wrong with that in respect of how the law was or is. It still is at that stage, by the way, until the Court of Justice say otherwise. Um, and it might be that the Court says, no, it's fine. And now, that will jar significantly if, if that's the case. But under the common law position, when it comes to it, it might be that that's, you know, the finding. Mm. The High Court found, uh, Mr Justice O'Connor found um, in 2019, December, December 2019, that there was an infirmity in respect of the uh, three sections of the Act which mandate the retention and production of uh, records which would have been used in the Dwyer case. And that's how it's ended up in the Supreme Court. And what does that mean exactly? Um, so he identified pretty similar issues to what the uh, uh, um, Court of Justice identified in the Advocate General's opinion right. relating to oversight, independent oversight, um, you know, um, having wholesale mass indiscriminate uh, retention for long periods for mm. effectively offences that aren't state security related. And I guess the third thing is just, um, I guess, the timing you know, in terms of two years and and all that. So the, the High Court appears to be right on that. Maybe not on all grounds, but certainly, you know, uh, that's how we've ended up in the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court needs to make a decision when it comes back, back from Luxembourg once the court gives its decision. Um, but then it'll be for the Court of Appeal uh, to, to determine... To determine Dwyer's fate. fate. Yeah. And I just wanted to say to you, like, okay, this might be obvious for you, but I don't think the general public... Real, you know, when you see the headlines, you actually think it's Graham Dwyer who's come up with this and who has kind of, you know, realized this loophole or whatever you'd call it, more yeah. than a loophole in the law. But really, explain the job of lawyers and, and his defense people that are there. Their job is to robustly, constantly, um, you know, challenge the law, isn't it? Well, um, your job as a lawyer is to represent your client to the best of your ability, and you know, as a as a practitioner, also maintain your duty to the court, um, and where necessary, you know, I guess take the necessary steps to clarify issues for your client, but also for the court um, as it goes. And I can get into hours of discussion about uh, um, the ethics of, of what we do in practice, but ultimately, um, where a uh, concern over a criminal um, conviction arises. Um, which is on the threshold of beyond a reasonable doubt. And if evidence was used to convict, uh, which was, let's just say, uh, unlawfully obtained or there was question marks over it or it should have been redacted or or set aside when it came to the trial, that's a significant issue. Mm. Um, So, rightly so, his lawyers have challenged that and that's where we are. So they went before the High Court on a different track before Judge Mm O'Connor. He made his finding, you know, in terms of constitutionality or otherwise, made his reference, it was stayed. Um, uh, then it went to the Court of Appeal on a, on a, what we call a um, leapfrog appeal. So it's got there fairly quickly, it has to be said. Uh, and um, the Supreme Court made the reference uh, in um, uh, January 20, 2020. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, effectively, I think once it comes back, we'll see what the Supreme Court says about it. But I think it would be Difficult enough uh, for them to ignore what the court says, depending on how the court finds. Another observation in respect of what went on during the Dwyer hearing in Luxembourg was that 13 member states appeared 
to intervene in the in the hearing. That's a significant issue. Why, you know, in terms of people listening to this, is that significant? It indicates that other member states are possibly doing or were possibly doing the same thing as us in terms of retaining information. So having watched a little bit of the hearing, the court was very interested in why so many member states had rocked up. Right. So, I mean, I don't want to be a gambling man, but it might bring that following the Advocate General's um, statistic of 70% into the 30% category and they might deviate slightly. But the law is clear in terms of what the privacy and electronic communications aspects say um, in terms of what should and shouldn't happen with this information. So Dwyer's appeal will be heard and whatever uh, the Supreme Court decision on the constitutionality of these phone records will be included in that, but they will not be the make or break necessarily for whether he is released or not. I think you believe there may have to be a retrial. I think the best possible outcome will be a retrial, but I know, for example, I mean, the, the Supreme Court will make a decision. There's no two ways about that. Mm. And that decision will, will, will feed um, what goes on in the Court of Appeal. But... My own view is that the JC case is a significant impediment um, when it comes to assessing what way that information was obtained and used in terms of the national law and how we behave as prosecutors and also defenders uh, mm. when it comes to, to, to the legal work. Um, so I think, I, mean, I, think this, I think that there's a significant job of work for Mr. Dwyer, Mr. Dwyer's legal team in, before the Court of Appeal. Mm. But it will be coloured by what the Supreme Court decides ultimately and what the Court of Justice decides ultimately. But it's by no means over. It's by no means a home run uh, for Mr. Dwyer. There's no two ways about that. But certainly the, the wind was, has changed in, in, in his favour. If there was a, a retrial on the basis that this was unconstitutional, we'd be looking at going back to trial without that phone evidence. I think that's right. Which is very significant on the day that Elena O'Hara went missing. Mm. And again, we can hear a little bit of um, a documentary that was made in relation to that. I think it may very well be that uh, he, uh, and in fact most of the serial killers I've worked with, they start quite small and then they evolve. And by the time that they're caught, they're so operating in another moral universe that people will often say to me, oh, they were trying to be caught. And I go, no, 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 no. It's just that they, they were so filled with their own self-importance and power that they thought they could get away with everything. Now, often there's large gaps between murders and sequences of murders, and those large gaps become narrower and narrower towards the end of a killing cycle. I think we still had a large gap here, and that was because the fantasy of that, mur that first murder would be enough to sustain him psychologically for a long period of time. Mm. Would he have gone on to kill? Would that fantasy have been enough for him just to have killed once? No. I, I get the impression that if he hadn't been caught, that evolution of fantasy mm. would still have continued. What happened on that day was that there were 64 contacts between the two phones, the slave and master. I mean, that is essentially was the, I mean, certainly from a layperson's point of view, not as a lawyer, but sitting there in the courtroom listening to that, that day, you could hear her, you could, you could actually see her being lured to her death and, um, you know, the final, 
messages and texts going through the t- the two phones, but that really was a very significant amount of um, uh, of evidence. I would have thought would that have to be removed if the appeals court rules a, a retrial. It's difficult to answer that categorically, um, mm. but you'd think that if, it, from my point of view, it, it appears to be a bit of an all or nothing here. Mm. So it may be the case that that's excluded. But we're, we were into an ec- ecumenical discussion then about, mm. well, why aren't we cleaned up here? Why isn't our act cleaned up to allow the investigation of serious offences? Now, it might have been the case, if you look at the timeline here, that we were late. We would have been late going to the um, telecoms operators looking for the information. Uh, you know, given the amount of time it takes to investigate these types of cases. But having that information about 64 contacts in one particular day and then it just goes dead thereafter, and I don't mean that in a, in a distasteful way, mm. um, that's important information. Um, but the question is, what's proportionate in terms of what can be recorded and is fair? Um, I mean, if you take, take the telecoms community, they're recording all this information for and putting in vast amount of investment to retain data which fundamentally may not be used in you know save for a fraction of the of the time mm. but um when you consider what the AG has said last week you have to look at it and say well you know is it disproportionate to have wholesale um mass and indiscriminate recording I mean, everything we we do in our personal lives is being recorded there and i think the answer is probably yes now you might say well record it for 6 months and let the prosecutors work more quickly when it comes to these things. But who's to say that um, we have a dilig- we didn't you know, we didn't have a diligent guard finding a set of keys in, in, in the reservoir up in Wicklow? Um, you know, this may not nev- may, may never have come to light the way it did. And um, I think there's certainly an argument, and I, I am someone who is obviously in favour of rights, particularly privacy and freedom of expression. But there is a proportionality and a balancing act which needs to take effect here. Because ultimately, what we've seen from the European courts, uh, stemming from the annulment of the um, Data Retention Enforcement Directive in 2014, which you know, somewhat coincidentally came from an Irish um, reference, uh, has now come back to kind of bite us. Um, so, you know, uh, and the Department of Justice, by the way, started to work on this in 2017 and had a draft bill. And they'd started... Um, a to scrutiny on this particular subject of retaining information and they were trying to upgrade the legislation but it just didn't get there it wasn't brought through the way it should have been so I mean that's a huge issue mm. and so I mean when you take it and I was following this trial when it was on and you know that type of communication tends to paint a certain picture there's no mm-hmm. two ways about it and um, there is a, a difficulty there there's a gap there but there must be a proportionate... So this, um, would, for example, the discovery of a handset with those texts on it be outside of that law? Which no, that's you, separate. That's separate, Jack. Yeah, what so, you'd be looking for is the actual, the, the pinging or whatever you'd call that. The, yeah, it's metadata only. Yes. And that's the thing, you know, this is why I say it's by no means a home run. Yes. Yeah. Okay, a lot of circumstantial evidence in terms of the telecoms positioning and the metadata comes into it. There's no two ways about that but it's not the entirety of it. Mm-hmm. And it may be that there's enough there if a retrial occurred to, to convict. To convict again. Yeah. Um, and finally, I suppose, do you have any idea, like there must be other um, lawyers waiting back in the wings watching this with huge interest. There must be lots of other cases there, is there? I have heard of one case in recent weeks where uh, a successful challenge was brought to um, this particular legislation and that the telephone information, the metadata was um, redacted or kept out of the prosecution. 
But there's two things to be said here. It is not the fault of the judiciary that we have found ourselves in this position. The judges read the law and they act as the umpires in terms of the law that comes from Leinster House or from the Oireachtas or the European Union. And all courts and tribunals are European courts and tribunals as well as national courts and tribunals. And we need to remember that. So if a matter of European law comes uh, before a court, and I, I, I use the example of the ash cloud compensation case, for example, where a lady said, I was impeded by the ash cloud. And there's a question before the court, the district court in Dublin, that's unclear. I want a reference to the Court of Justice. And Judge Collins, who is retired now, made that reference. And it was an important reference because it clarified the point on refunds from Ryanair. Mm. But we often forget that we are acting as courts and lawyers in European courts as by virtue of our membership of the union. Um, but the key thing is the, law, the, the, the judiciary are not responsible for uh, what, what's occurred. They will have to adjudicate on it. And the uh, listening public may not like the answers from time to time that they get. But ultimately, we're in a situation where the Oireachtas must legislate in this area and it's complicated. So even with the best intentions and we get something done very, very quickly, it's going to take time uh, and making sure that we, we literally uh, run through and, and undertake all of the contortions that are required and there are significant legislative contortions required to get this right mm. and have a situation where, for example, serious offences could be investigated but within the uh, ambush and, uh, and uh, I guess, strictures of the Charter uh, and other legislative bases that, that, that arise in, in, um, in the European so an, uh, regime. Is there an ability to expand that suggestion that, you know, only crimes that are seen as a threat to the security of the state, could we look European-wise at expanding that to serious crimes well, maybe again, over 12 years or something. You go back and look at what, what occurred before the, the European Court of Justice during the hearing. Having that many member states intervene is a very significant issue. I mean, the message from that is that the law is wrong. Okay, Now, we can't say that because ultimately the law is the law. It's been annulled and that's the end of it. So what you're looking at is Article 15 and what are the, what, what are the permissions within the Privacy and Electronic um, Communications Directive. Now, I, I can say to you, and this is a bit of outside knowledge, the new e-privacy regulation which is coming forward is probably the most constipated and delayed piece of legislation from the European institutions that I've come across in a long, long time. Mm. Why is it? Because it's in no platform, no Facebook, no Instagram, no take-your-pick uh, platform's interest to get that done because it's going to shift cost and liability and so on around. It's going to throw flip it on its head to a large degree. Um, but a hugely uh, lobbied piece of legislation uh, that that's just going to take... Um, you know, huge work to get to where it needs to be. And, you know, um, you know, the, the, the Irish state, as I say, the Irish state will need to put significant legal resource into getting this particular um, mm. legislation right. And I do think there is room for it. And as I said, I'm in favour of the rights to privacy and communications privacy and freedom of expression. But there's also a balancing act between having information to prosecute or something has so obviously been uh, procured over a telephone or an internet connection. And, you know, let's face it, we are the hub in Euro for Europe for a lot of um, very significant IT commerce uh, and activity. And I, I do think there's an argument to be made for some proportionate response from the Oireachtas that is lawful. Um, and, of course, you'll say to me, well, how do we know it's lawful? Yeah, sometimes these things have to be tested mm. uh, before we know the um, the outcome. And I think that's what, what we're facing here with Dwyer because ultimately you could have turned around and said, well, in 2014, it was an old, sure, we knew that back then. But the reality was we had a piece of legislation that was debated, went through the House of the Oireachtas and came in 2011 and to all intents and purposes looked good. 
from a national point of view. But it was only till it was challenged um, that we had an issue with it. Of course, we have to just point out that I suppose amidst all this legal jargon and legislation and European legislators, etc., there are the families probably on both sides of this. Um, you know, you have uh, Elena O'Hara's family and there have been other people there as well who are obviously, you know, waiting with anticipation to see what happens um, and it brings it all back up again, of course, doesn't it? But well, that's for, right. For I mean, Dwyer, when is his next significant date or when will he know? I'm actually not sure what the what, when the next uh, um, outing is before the Court of Appeal. I, 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 it, I, it may be stayed until such time as this is resolved, so I, I can't answer that, unfortunately. But I think you're right in respect of the position of the families. And it's not just um, Elaine O'Hara's family, it's, I think, anybody who's been associated with serious criminal activity, who, where that activity has been procured over tele- telephone networks. And this is becoming more of an issue than it had been in the past. Um, with the availability of internet connections, I guess the instantaneous aspect of those connections and also the fact that literally everybody carries a mobile phone around with them. So if someone's going to harass you, it'll be on one of those devices and literally in your face uh, very, very quickly. Um, And, you know, there's a very fine line between um, nubile banter to um, sudden harassment uh, and criminal conduct uh, on those devices. And we need to be able to track that. Um, but the question is, well, what's the proportionate response? We've seen Coco's Law coming in, for example, and we've seen, um, you know, uh, amendments or at least proposed amendments to the um, harassment section 10 of the Non-Fatal Offence Against the Person Act 1997, um, where, where those offences are being procured again by, by communications devices. So there must be something there and we can't have nothing. Um, so, it, you know, it really is up to the, the state to to get its act together. And I think... Most citizens would probably agree that there must be something in terms of a response to allow prosecutors to at least check. Um, but again, you know, we shouldn't be too concerned about nefarious activity from the state because I think it's exceptional uh, um, and, and just making sure we point it in the right way and, you know, um, remembering uh, those who are affected by these crimes. It can't be a situation where we have nothing to go on. Um, but where's the middle ground and how do we get ourselves into a position where we can do what we need to do to protect the interests of the state, but also to protect the interests of the citizen? Because that's really what's missing here mm-hmm. is that that ability for the guardie to investigate crime. And currently, and I, mean, I, I have friends in the force, I have friends in the state, um, and they say to me, well, isn't this a terrible situation to be in? And the answer is yes. Mm. Where do we go? Well, hopefully 2022, we'll get some clarity on it and... Um We'll see whether Graham Dwyer does face retrial or if he uh, remains in jail. Ronan Lupton, thank you very much. Thanks, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Have you heard the news? 
The Irish Independent has a new podcast. Thousands of people who work in the events industry are making more noise than ever. But are they being listened to? 20 minutes, five days a week, the Indo Daily takes you beyond the headlines and into Ireland's most talked about stories. Two gangs, 18 people killed, families torn apart. The Indo Daily podcast, available on Spotify, Apple, independent.ie and wherever you get your podcasts. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.